0: Volume One, Chapter Four of Bungay Castle by Elizabeth Bonhote. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patty Cunningham. If there be any so fastidious and unfeeling as to condemn and deprecate the romantic hopes and flattering visions cherished in the buoyant bosom of nineteen, I am sorry for them, and here avow I wish never entirely to forget the fascinating pleasure of such air built hopes should they be sometimes attended with danger to the weak and frail they are likewise accompanied with their advantages to the good and virtuous and often enable us to encounter trials with a resolution and fortitude which at a more advanced period of our lives when time has weakened our bodily frame and experience deprived us of those gay illusions we find it difficult and painful to acquire the philosophy of nineteen though not abstruse is flattering and conclusive so much the more valuable for after all the researches of philosophy what are we taught to know but that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards that we are merely the pilgrims and passengers of a day that our resting-place must be found in a better and unknown world that we must encounter innumerable trials on our journey and at last die and be forgotten even by those for whom we have toiled and to whom we are most tenderly attached surely then we may be allowed to snatch or steal a few of those innocent enjoyments just thrown in our way to encourage our fortitude and clear our path from some of the briars and thorns with which it is so profusely planted happy is it for those in the common walks of life that all their stock of philosophy is comprised in a few words acquired without study and retained without taxing their time or burdening their memory it was my fate i could not run from it it was to be these trite sentences reconcile them to many distressing events and sometimes are their excuse for the frailties of their conduct when the parties met at breakfast the next morning any careful observer might have discovered by the confusion visible on the countenance of madeline the constraint in her manner of addressing edwin his more than usual vivacity and the pale cheeks and swelled eyes of roseline that something had occurred to produce the change but suspicion not being a frequent guest at the castle no such discovery was made Every one employed themselves as usual, and in a few hours universal cheerfulness seemed to prevail. The only observations made by Lady de Morney were, that her dear Edwin looked remarkably well, was in charming spirits, and had dressed himself better and more becomingly than usual. Madeline coloured, and thought the same. Roseline smiled, and Edwin whispered something in the ear of Madeline that prevented the roses fading on her cheek the dress of madeline though to her particularly becoming would to thousands have been totally the reverse it was the dress of the order of benedictines to which she belonged consisting of a black robe with a scapulary of the same under the robe nuns when professed wore a tunic of white undyed wool and when they went to the choir they had a cowl like that worn by the monks but the boarders were in what we may call a state of probation were allowed to wear a tunic of muslin or cambric and covered their heads with a white veil this dress little suited to please the whimsical taste of the present time was strange as it may appear simple and becoming and proved the truth of the poet's observation that loveliness needs not the foreign aid of adornment but is when unadorned adorned the most Madeline, in the habit of her order, was so captivating a figure that no one ever thought any alteration or change in it could have added a charm to those bestowed on her by the partial hand of nature. She was tall and elegantly formed. The expression of her countenance blended with softness and dignity, conveying an idea of superior virtue being united to superior loveliness. Just before dinner the doctor observed that Madeline looked pale— having felt her pulse he inquired what had given them cause to beat so much out of time i must examine into this matter he said archly they are galloping along at a strange rate either the head or the heart must occasion this revolution in the system of my patient's usual habit if it be the disease of the heart i must resign my place to a more able practitioner do not blush my fair nun but tell me whom you would have called in i am perfectly satisfied with your advice my good doctor and at this time believe i want a cook more than a physician therefore excuse me if i say you you entirely misunderstand my case don't be too positive said de clavering of my ignorance you may safely trust me with all your complaints even with those of the heart for i feel myself extremely interested that you should not return to the nunnery with any additional one added to those you so unfortunately brought away ah said madeline mentally advice is now too late i shall carry back with me a more corroding a more painful complaint than any i ever knew before yet strange as it is i would not be cured for the world as my being so would wound edwin de morney only camelford was present when this little bandinage passed between the doctor and his patient he advised the former to lay aside his wig and take up the cowl as the most certain method of discovering the truth for though the leites he added will not tell all they think to you or i they will not attempt to deceive their cot if i thought putting on a cowl would transform me to a god said de Clavering i would soon hazard the transformation and then i would place a shield before the heart of every fair daughter of britain that should have the property of a talisman to warn them against the designs and insidious attention of young men six feet high with sparkling eyes auburn hair teeth of ivory handsome legs and white hands madeline knew the portrait and rising to conceal her blushes ran hastily out of the room hugh camelford burst into a violent fit of laughter and told the doctor so far from being thought a cot the young lady certainly took him for the Teffle, having discovered his spells and cloven foot or perhaps for up jones who after trying for luff was thrown into the red sea and had haunted all luffsick maidens ever since poor disconsented typh and that will be your fate hugh retorted the doctor unless you send home the welch lass whom you betrayed and then left to starve with your son a fat chubby boy very like his father as i hope to escape the doctor's and tamnation said the indignant hugh i never betrayed a lass in my whole life therefore you cataplasm you plister you caustic of fire pring no such scandals on the coot name of camelford lest i take a little of your carnivorous blood and make you drink it the doctor stole off laughing and camelford soon recovered his good humour a dance was proposed for the evening and readily agreed to by the young people who determined to make the time pass as cheerfully as possible during the absence of sir philip and the visit of madeline in those days dancing was the favourite amusement of the youth of both sexes rich and poor young and old one with another mixed in the animating dance complaints of weariness and fatigue were seldom heard this exercise was not only favourable to health but the roses it produced on the glowing cheek of youth rendered all application to the borrowed ones of art totally unnecessary rouge was then unknown and no warren existed to abolish old women by giving the furrowed features of age an unfading bloom the plain jacket with a small quantity of ribbon bound round a cambric cap were then thought becoming and few ornaments were worn but on very important and particular occasions yet beauty was equally admired the same homage was paid to it and it held in bondage as many captives without the adventitious aid of deception and extravagance another preservative of youth and health was their keeping better that is earlier hours night was night and dedicated to its original purpose day was properly divided and found of sufficient length for all the useful employments of life few young ladies but had seen the sun in all its glory and found their hearts expanded by the grand and awful sight and while they welcomed its reviving rays from the portals of the east it tended to raise their minds to that god who made the sun and who alone could number the stars by which it was surrounded a fine moonlit evening seldom passed unnoticed by these aspiring worthies eager after knowledge or having happily fewer amusements they had more time to attend to the instructive beauties of nature the study of which affords an inexhaustible source of pleasure and surprise fearless of their complexions they not only rambled but worked in their gardens each had a little spot of ground marked out and it soon produced the desired effect every one was emulous to outshine the other in its cultivation and sir philip or lady de morney were often called upon as arbitrators to decide the superior beauty of a rose the size of a carnation or the snowy tints of a lily de clavering had told them that under their feet they often trampled on plants in the careful study of which might be found a cure for every disease incident to the climate they inhabited and that in other climates the earth produced her treasures for the same benevolent purpose But the careless inattention of mankind to this useful knowledge had rendered the profession of physic absolutely necessary and given men of learning and genius an opportunity of displaying their talents in preserving the lives of their fellow-creatures in consequence of these hints all kinds of herbs were planted and their virtues put to the test by being applied to relieve the diseases of their poor neighbors and never did a high-bred town bell at making a conquest Or a hero after obtaining a signal victory, exalt more or feel greater delight than the having effected a cure produced in the minds of these young practitioners. De Clavering was gratified in giving them all the intelligence they requested, very often inquired when they went their rounds to visit their patients, and offered them his physical wig to give them consequence. In those days, people lived much longer in the same number of years to rise between five and six o'clock and breakfast at seven was their usual custom the time of taking their meals differing as much as their antique habits dinner was constantly on the table between eleven and twelve and supper regularly served at seven tea was then but little used whether the introduction of that bewitching beverage had been followed by the long catalogue of evils laid to its charge i am not able to determine but as i have known many weak constitutions who have never felt any ill effects from taking it i am inclined to think it has not such dangerous properties as are alleged against it by valetudinarians and their medical advisers but what would the anteluvian souls who compose my dramatis personae say to the innovations made upon time in these days of delicate and fashionable refinement they would suppose the world turned topsy-turvy and be puzzled to know why the afternoon should be discarded and what part of the twenty-four hours to call night the periodical times of taking refreshment are quite different to what they formerly were and contradictory to the practice of our ancestors who hoarded their time and considered it as a treasure of some value we may now literally be said to turn day into night and night into day while the want of time is the source of general complaint our people of fashion and many of no fashion at all breakfast at three in the afternoon dine at seven sip their tea at eleven o'clock at night and sup at four in the morning whereas queen elizabeth breakfasted at five or six in the morning and dined at eleven in the forenoon she and all her court went to bed with the sun in summer and at eight or nine o'clock in winter the parliament in the reign of charles the first went to prayers at five or six in the morning and the king dined at twelve nay in the licentious reign of that merry monarch his son dinner at two was thought a very late hour for all public diversions were at an end by six in the evening and the ladies after seeing a play went in their carriages to hyde park whether it would not be greatly to the advantage of people in general to revive some old customs and return to the prudent habits of our progenitors will not admit of much dispute private families in these expensive times would undoubtedly be benefited morning would again become a theme for the poet and poor daylight be brought into fashion our parliament too would find more time to transact the important business of the nation on which they so eloquently harangue possibly a good dinner would add weight to their arguments and the not being hungry would prevent their eagerness to adjourn but one of its greatest evils after that above mentioned is felt by servants particularly the unhappy cook she seldom sees the face of day never enjoys the enlivening rays of the sun and can scarcely find time even to change her clothes till the night is too far advanced to render the change necessary it was formerly the custom for people to walk after tea and by doing so acquire a redoubled relish for the variegated beauties of nature but now the table makes its appearance at so unseasonable an hour and fashionable etiquette with the love of good cheer detains them so long that in fact it appears the chief business of life is to study every art and contrivance how to destroy and squander not how to improve our time and instead of people's eating that they may live they now live only to eat and drink that the senses i presume may be disabled from torturing them with reproaches but to return to our tale in the evening as edeliza was going down the dance her eyes with those of madeline were attracted by the same object a plume of white feathers placed on a suit of armour nodded and the armour moved this had such an effect madeline screamed and edeliza throwing herself into the arms of de willows begged he would protect her from the ghost the dancing stopped the whole party was alarmed and lady de morney very much surprised but on being informed what had occasioned the bustle hugh camelford flew to discover its cause and jumping upon a long table which was placed by the side of the room for the accommodation of large parties on any particular occasion he without much ceremony caught hold of the haunted armour when to the astonishment of the whole company there instantly appeared gentle reader be not alarmed not the ghost of a murdered hero nor forsaken maid but the youngest daughter of sir philip de morney who skipping from her concealment upon the table and from thence to the floor shook her head decorated with a profusion of flaxen hair which curled in natural ringlets and laughed heartily at the fright she had occasioned of all the coasts i ever saw said the delighted hugh catching her up in his arms this is by much the prettiest and most entertaining i should like to be haunted by such an one all the days of my life lady de morney called the little culprit and having severely reproved her ordered her to bed to which she had been sent before the party had begun dancing for some fault she had committed but had persuaded one of the servants to place her as before described that she might be a spectator though she was not permitted to be a partaker in the amusement lady de morney reprimanded the servant and had it not been for the general intercession of the company poor bertha would have been a prisoner in her own apartment some days the incident simple in itself happened very unfortunately for the two ladies who had agreed to accompany edwin in his subterranean tour they lingered till the last moment and then withdrew with visible reluctance but determined as soon as they reached their own room not to say a word to edwin of their fears as they knew it would expose them to ridicule if not to censure and there was not in the catalogue of human ills or evils any circumstance Madeline would so much have dreaded as being thought meanly of by edwin de morney within little more than an hour after the family had withdrawn all the servants retired to rest they were joined by the sanguine and spirited edwin accompanied by the ancient veteran who though loaded with the heavy burden of fourscore years was still active and hardy his senses unimpaired and his sturdy limbs still able to carry with firmness their accustomed load his grey locks hung with silver dignity upon his aged shoulders and his eye retained some of their former expression he made a profound obeisance to the ladies on his entrance and was received with that condescending affability which his years and long-tried faithfulness demanded edwin's manner of introducing him flattered the old man's remaining stock of vanity and revived in full force the remembrance of his former exploits which though they had not procured him preferment secured him attention and respect this is my friend bertrand said edwin addressing Madeline particularly on his entrance though you had some fears with only such a stripling as myself for a leader you can have none with so experienced and brave a guide the old man listened with delighted attention to this elogium from the lips of his dear young master whom he had so often dandled on his knee whom he had been so fortunate as to snatch from a watery grave and for whom he retained a stronger affection than for any other being on earth sir philip had long maintained him in ease and comfort and excused him from every employment but such as tended to the preservation of his health both the ladies held out their hands which he respectfully kissed and prayed that heaven might bless and reward them for their kindness to their old but grateful servant now the ceremony of introducing you into the bed-chamber of these fair ladies is over tis time for us to think of proceeding my old friend said edwin if you will assist me in unfastening the trap-door we will procure lights and putting ourselves under your direction follow wherever you are disposed to lead us End of chapter four recording by patty cunningham